Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Endurance Asia podcast and this week we are joined by Mr Mark Agnew, an adventure journalist for the South China Morning Post based out of Hong Kong. He has been covering the ultra running and adventure community in the the Hong Kong and, uh, and Asia region for the past past few years and um and is also a uh, a budding adventurer himself having attempted to cross the atlantic by rowing a couple of times and is planning uh, a world first to uh, to cross the northwest passage um from atlantic to pacific through greenland uh, and uh, in between canada and out um out through the pacific um uh, so yeah, major major challenge he's planning for in the, in the next year, and really enjoyed this chat. Had a couple of couple of drinks while we were while we were catching up and uh, and talking about the um, the ultra running community and the uh, the um, endurance community in Hong Kong. And uh, he, Mark gets to share some of his favourite stories that he's been able to cover over the last few years. Before we uh, before we go deep into into his background as a as an ocean rower and and the expedition he's got coming up, um, so with that here we are, Mr. Mark Agnew. Mr. Mark Agnew, welcome to the Endurance Asia podcast, or should I should I call you Mark Douglas? Agnew. So do, we, do we need to put the middle name in there? Yeah, well, I've got, got, got all, all the middle names on Facebook, but Mark will suffice for now. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, mate. It's, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to, to have you come and uh, join Rick and I. Um, we've, uh, you're, uh, yeah, you're synonymous with, uh, with being, I think, one of the preeminent or, or the only um, <laughs> adventure <laughs> journalists, um, certainly work, you, um, w- working for the SCMP, running, um, running the uh, adventure and outdoor section for that magazine and, a, um, and an a, adventure, can we call it, what would you call yourself actually? I, my job title is Outdoor and Extreme Sports Editor, although I don't have anybody under me, so I rarely edit anybody else's work. So journalist is probably- a <laughs> you, you edit your own work. Yes, edit my own work. Uh, well, yeah, probably the most, uh, yeah, probably the most high-profile dyslexic editor there is. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked a bad career choice for my skill set. Um, but uh, yeah, apart from that, I'm al- already in- into outdoor sports and adventure sports before I'm a journalist, uh, or probably why I'm a journalist, as it were. So um, I'm not sure how I describe myself, not because I'm particularly complex, but because... Uh, <laughs> Those, those words like adventure and outdoor and those sort of things seem a bit big. Adventure enthusiast, shall we say. Yes, enthusiast, um, that, seems, uh, that seems appropriate. <laughs> Uh, I think anyone that's um, that's uh, been in anyone that's in Hong Kong and that's anyway involved in the in the trail running um, community, I think um, they will they will know you well. Um, I think that um, 
you've done a lot to be able to sort of promote the um, the sport, the the fastest growing sport. I think that we were chatting earlier, like the the largest participation support, largest participation sport in the world. Is that right? Oh well, running. I was saying running in general. Running it's just we were, you know, we were discussing about uh, various newspapers, um, what they cover and what they don't cover, and it's just funny that. Uh, a newspaper, any newspaper in the world might have football as a tab, which is obviously hugely popular the world over. But if you think about just participation numbers, everybody, everybody is running. Even footballers are probably running for training. Um, so many people are running. It's just the single biggest participation sport in the world. And uh, it's interesting to sort of evolve in my own writing and also reflect on how you cover millions and millions of people who are just taking part in it every day whether they're running around their block or running to work or running to lose weight or running for a 5k or a half marathon or a marathon and now over the last decade or so trail and ultra marathons which is more specific to my role but it's just it's just the single biggest participation sport in the world and as simple as that you've muted yourself scott <laughs> <laughs> that is i think that that is that's gone down as like the the comment for i mute myself because my dog's barking in the background and uh, and my kids shout in the background but um you're on mute is like is is the phrase and that's come out of the past three months isn't it it's the classic sort of like zoom yeah. comment <laughs> unmute yourself um but yeah it's uh um yeah, I was about to say that you're in a city where um, certainly you said, mentioned the last 10 years, like ultra running has just sort of like captured the imagination of the, um, uh, of the people in the town. And I think um, we talk about it quite a lot on the podcast. We had a lot of people on from Hong Kong and about the ultra running community there and that it's the accessibility of it, but the, just the growth of it over the last 10 years. And I think you, you've, uh, how long have you been um, at the SCMP covering? Uh, yeah, covering about three now? years, three, maybe just over three years. And uh, yeah, it's been in the last sort of 10 years that it's been around, but then the last three years, it's got to the point where there's, there's almost a race every single weekend and not just in race season, like even, well, Certainly not now, obviously, but in the, even in the summer months, there's um, they have like a race pretty much every weekend nowadays. It's just gone gone crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, everybody says in Hong Kong, well, the reason it's popular is because it's accessible. But I think that's a bit of an oversimplification because the the trails have always been accessible in Hong Kong for like fifty years, a hundred years. But trail running has only taken off in the last ten, so it's. I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, it's part of a global trend. Trail running has taken off everywhere in the world. But why has it taken hold so much in Hong Kong? Was there a particular running community here anyway that transformed into trail running community? Probably not, because there's not that many road running routes that are, say, compared to London going around a park or wide streets that are empty. Um, and it, it's, there's, there's lots of reasons. I mean, certainly accessibility lowers one of the barriers to trail running because trail running is hugely time consuming you've got to get places and that puts a barrier up that's probably one of the reasons why um <clears throat> although people say running is the easiest sport to take part in um it's actually very expensive when you take into account time um but another reason i think is because hong kong is full of like type a people you know the best trail runners in hong kong are also lawyers and investment bankers and 
these really type A focused people and that sort of commitment, push yourself, big goal orientation aspect to trail running really fits into the community, the professional community here rather than the running community. So I don't think there was necessarily a running community that then transformed into trail, trail running. I think there was a professional community of white collar high achievers and then when the global trend of trail running started taking off and it started taking root in Hong Kong, that married perfectly with their outlet rather than um, with their, their hobby, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And it's something that we've kind of talked about quite a bit of there's an there's a absolute correlation between people that are successful in their professional life and end up really good at endurance sports. And I think it's a lot down to the most like the, the sort of key age for endurance sports seems to be in sort of like mid to late mid thirties into forties. Um, and it's actually really interesting when you think about, I, I like what you said there about it's cheap to do running or, or like uh, to, to do running or trail running as a sport, but actually not in terms of time. I've never thought about it like that because time is money for a lot of these professionals as well. Right. And um and yeah it takes a lot of time to do it but it's it, it seems you, you to be it's the, a huge if you look at the there. demographic if you look at the demographic of the start line of the utmb for example or or a triathlon which has even more barriers to it because you actually have to buy a kit um like it is uh it is a demographic of people with money and uh they have money that they can spend on the equipment that they need but also on uh, making sure that one of their partners can stay at home and look after the kids while they spend 24 hours in the hills or three days getting like getting to the hills and then spending 24 hours in the hills or they can afford additional help like a nanny or um, a domestic helper in Hong Kong. All of these things are important and they're playing into the demographic that, uh, that, that, that uh, makes up trail running and is prohibitive yeah, in, in some ways. I remember Andre Bloomberg saying that the great thing about trail running is that you can, you know, it, it marries both the, the barista and the barrister at a start line. Uh, but, and, and I, I, I do agree with that in terms of the accessibility of it, but then I also agree that it's, it seems to appeal more so to that sort of type a alpha male or female um professional that just wants to absolutely like push themselves in both their professional and and, and their sport as well uh, and this is not just trail running i think like any of the sort of major like adventure stuff which you cover like whether it be mountaineering um i'm a big fan of like adventure racing and some of the people from that are like like really good professionals in there um as well yeah there's a and, and there is the cost that I mean you don't have people like flying around the world doing Iron Man on like uh, it, it's difficult to do that unless you have the means to be able to sort of buy buy the bike do the travel and uh, yeah um, but you would have thought like trail running is and, and actually that's one good thing about like the Asia Asia Trail Masters or the um is that it's done in um, a lot of countries around Southeast Asia where I think there's a big focus. I mean, we had David Lloyd on recently who's um, organized like a lot of the big uh, marathon, uh, ultra marathons in, um, in Vietnam. And actually out of the 4,000 participants, they're having like 90 to 95% um, locals. So I think there's, 
and there is a part of that which is trying to sort of like get out to um the sort of much wider and and be able to appeal to like um people that are aren't of the sort of like demographic that um are uh, are able like more professional demographic and just be more accessible to everyone yeah well um i mean to agree and disagree with what andre said the barista and the barrister is that um is a distinction be- possibly between trail running and trail racing anybody can trail run and when you're talking about hong kong because of the accessibility of it the time barrier comes down because you don't have to spend so much time if you were let's say a barista in in london and you wanted to find hills um but to enter a trail race i mean you need six or seven hundred dollars and a set amount of time um so a trail race perhaps is more prohibitive i mean have you, have you read um um the book the rise of the ultra runner i haven't as Ad, adarina adarani uh, finn is yeah. on my stack ready to it's a, ready it's to a long unpronounceable name but everybody calls him finn and uh, i'll stick to that too before embarrassing myself by trying to pronounce it but <laughs> yeah, he one of the points he makes he's standing on the utmb start line his previous book was running with Kenyans and about why they're the best long distance runners in the world. And he looks around the UTMB start line and he thinks these are the cream of the crop of the endurance sport. Where are the Kenyans? And it's because there's not prize money or money. It costs there's not money. money yeah. And there's, um, and so the incentive goes down for, uh, and the barriers go up for people who aren't necessarily uh, got the time and the money to take part. Yeah. But in Hong Kong, <laughs> The, the money, there's people with money and the time barrier isn't there um that's probably one of the reasons yeah rick and i were were discussing the other day um the the whole coronavirus and covid lockdown has especially in the last couple of weeks has created this you know people have been on and there's these amazing athletes which have just got out and like there's fkts being knocked down left right and center and one of the things that I really love about that is that it is, you know, it's not about the medal. It's not about the sign up and the start line and the t-shirt. It's just because the trails are there and, uh, and because people want to push themselves and uh, to, to the limits and albeit it's uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of like pros that have been knocking off these FKTs. I just love the site, the kind of essence of it, that it's just back to the, because the trails are there and um yes it's to smash records as well um but it kind of like taps into the ethos of things like the hong kong four trails ultra challenge is like there's no sign up fee there's no uh, there's no medal at the end of it all right they get a t-shirt but um but you know it's because the it's because the trails are there and I, I i tend to like really love these challenges where it's not um, is people just coming up with a concept themselves or even if they haven't come up with a concept is something that is like a fat ass race that they can just rock up and, and do without having to, having to sign up or, uh, yeah. or go on a wait list. Yeah. The less fanfare certainly like really cuts the wheat from the chaff like quite quickly. But what, what, like, what is the, um, it finds out what your motivation is. If it isn't like a big name race or a big name medal, you can hang on your wall. If it's just you and the mountain, then you find out who really loves trail running quickly. Yeah, and I mean you've you've witnessed in Hong Kong some um, pretty impressive feats over the um, over the last few years since you've been covering on SMP. What what would you say was for you 
um, the most, or in fact, you'll probably need to do top three because I'm sure there's a few impressive, but what, um, what have been some of the most impressive performance that you've covered? Um, there is one which is uh, a guy called James Summers Eve. I put this in my, uh, like, every week she had to write a paragraph about what our highlight of 2019 was. Um, this guy, James Summers Eve, is a, not a trail runner. Uh, he's an ex-rugby player, uh, probably 100 kilograms, and he did the Lantau 70, but he carried 44 kilograms. It was one kilogram for everyone that his dad had lost to cancer before he died. And uh, I think that the emotional aspect of it makes it so impressive, but also just the physical aspect. I mean, I, I think it was ignorance from bl his bliss for James because he hadn't ever done any sort of running before that wasn't training for rugby. So perhaps he didn't know. I think somebody who knew more about ultra running wouldn't have been stupid enough to carry 44 kilograms around the lab. So ignorance was bliss. And he got round. I think they gave him a little bit of extra time and allowed him to start early because they heard about the story. And some of my friends went and supported him. And they, his mum, I think, I can't remember now, but I think his mum came out and surprised him. And that, that physical feat of sort of, of getting around the Lantau 70 with that, especially when that burden isn't just 44 kilograms, but like an emotional kilo, uh, an emotional burden too. That was definitely one of the, it just blew my mind that. And perhaps possibly because I'm an ex-rugby player who isn't built like a trail runner at all. So I was like, I struggle hard enough as it is. And I, I always make the excuses because I'm but close to 100 kilograms. You're already carrying an extra 44 kilos, aren't yeah, you, yeah, but, no, um, <laughs> Without the backpack. What was he carrying? Like, how did he? Uh, was it just a backpack, or? Yeah, it's a back, it was like a big, like you know, a backpack that you'd see gap, gap year students taking around Thailand, but full of rice and weights. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Um, wow. And and I mean, Lantau Seventy goes down as one of the definitely not the longest, but one of the toughest um, ultra marathons in um, in Hong Kong. Um, Rick, have, I think have you Rick, have you knocked that off yet, Rick? Um, uh, I know that, so you and I, I, you and I, yeah. that you and I did the fifty, didn't we? But you had that brutal year on the seventy. I remember. No, we we did the MSIG together, which was a similar yeah. route to the Lantau seventy. But um, but yeah, what makes it so tough is it's just quite early on in the season, so it's almost like you're it's still in the summer when it's um, mm. and it's just a, yeah, it's a. I know so many people that have just uh, that have DNF'd it and just it's ruined. So. I can only imagine doing that with a with a forty four kg um, pack. Uh, what what? So top three then, Mark. What are a couple of the others which have um, uh, which you've enjoyed the, covering? The second one. Well, I, I mean, I've never ranked my top ten before, so I'm sort of pulling them out out of my um, out of, out of thin air. But I guess um, I've really enjoyed covering uh, Sarah Pemberton, who's uh, now a four trails survivor. But she's only 26 or 27, and she's done it three times. And just I, I did a story on her in the build-up to the first one, and then I did, I got a few quotes from her on the start line of the second one about why are you back, and then did a full-blown story on all, all the women who finished or, who's, or finished or survived at the end of the last one, which included her. So I sort of felt like I was I, I was like aware of the story and part of the journey from the beginning. And uh, that was just so cool to see her come back, especially like 
during your 20s as well uh, again you know if if it's if i'm looking for a reason why i connect to that story i, I can relate to james because i'm a, a former rugby player who's not built like a runner but i can relate to sarah because uh i had two failed atlantic attempts and it took so much out of me and uh and then seeing her go go for a third and, and complete it and see the catharsis that it that it, that it had the, the the effect the relief and then to see her sign up for the 10 year anniversary this year as well i feel like i'm doing my in my 20s as well and i feel like so many of my friends have done so many fun and cool things and in, in their 20s and i've just had uh, six years of my life dedicated to trying and rowing an ocean um and then to know to sort of see that reflected in sarah and she's so happy and positive she's such a cool nice person um that you know even if i hadn't even if it wasn't about somehow making it about me um, it would have been awesome to cover anyway so i, I love that because there's, there's no I, I guess without making it about my ocean rowing i've just got that in the back of my head at the moment because we're about to talk about ocean we'll rowing. get into that don't worry but, um, um, the reason i like talking this the, the reason that uh, covering Sarah was the uh, was is one of my favourite things, is because it's one of the only things I can think of where, for my entire time of the SEMP, I covered that journey from before she tried the first time, before she tried the second time, to when she completed it for the third time. And watching that journey over three years, rather than like a weekly article or a one-up follow-up, was uh, is really cool. And uh, Sarah is a super nice, determined person, so it it was makes it even better story. She is a she's a genuinely beautiful human being, isn't she? She's just like yeah. so so nice. So um, I didn't actually know that she'd um, the, the I knew about the last two years. I didn't realize the first year because um, two years ago she um, she got onto Hong Kong Island and then she was sort of, she missed the cutoff for the for the ferry, didn't she? Um, yeah. But what what amazed me, um, I'm sorry, but but that she did, she had tr- uh, tried the previous year. Did she not make the cuffs off on the Mac or something the previous year? Um, I can't I can't remember how far she got on the first year, but um, I remember the story was something about the, the headline was something like you should never finish a trail, ru- you should never re- finish a trace a training run and feel unhappy. So she was trying to like sort of do the trail, do all the training, sort of like on feel and make sure that she was always positive. Um, and then just basically underestimated the task and got lost. She got lost on um, at the end of the Maclows. Um And then um, the second year, I think she swung too far the other way and she ran super serious. And uh, then the third year, she married the two together where she um, like did the appropriate amount of recce the, and a bit more scientific with her training rather than just sort of trying to run happy but then was super positive throughout. I'm going to enjoy this. Like no matter what, I'm going to feel grateful, enjoy this. I'm going to have food that makes me happy rather than it's just like calorie counting. And it all played into her mindset, which was, I think, ultimately the big difference. But uh, I'm speaking yeah. for her. This is only the uh, conversation. Yeah, and, and actually I've been meaning to get her on. She's just an amazing human being. And, and what impressed me the most, I think you talk about that three-year journey, but she came out over Christmas, didn't she? And she did the four in four, which is yeah. all four trails in, in a day, but in the other direction. But um, but just, um, and she was the only, I think there was two people that, um, that tried it that year or did it that year. And I think yeah. she was the... Um, the only one to finish and she she also did the uh i think she won or 
came podiumed at the uh, 115k on the Ultra Trail Marishans around about then. I think Andre messaged her saying, "For the love of God, will you stop doing races? <laughs> You're going to cook yourself." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's um, and actually, there's just uh, um, this past year there were some amazing female performances on the um, the survivor performances on the Hong mm. Kong Four Trails. Um, so yeah, so um, you've got um, you've got James Summer Eve, you've got Sarah Pemberton. Who else have we got in your uh, in your t- in your top endurance feats um, that you've covered? Um, favorite ones to cover is possibly slightly different to my favorite ones because I loved I loved um, in, I just like Nikki Han for having finished being the only female finisher, and I love Nikki uh, as a, a friend, but as somebody to cover, she's very frustrating because she's so so modest that uh, it's, it's not like a false modesty at all. It's just, she just can't even see why she's great, which makes it so difficult. I remember you got her on the podcast. Yeah, you you got her on your, when you were doing the podcast for SCMP and she was just like, "Ah, she was just unbelievably humble. Yeah, it's just like, what do you think about when you're in your lowest moment? I don't know, just keep running. I'm like, cool, that's going to be a rubbish headline. (laughs) <laughs> like so that's why i love her personally but hate her as a journalist um so i guess that's my one of my favorite endurance feats because she's so modest it's just sort of a yeah. a neutral fan i'm like oh she's so modest she absolutely she crushed it and she doesn't even realize she has uh, but as a journalist yeah not one of my favorites <laughs> <laughs> um i'm uh, sorry nikki um i i'm actually just going to call out one and we're like we're on the sort of um the um the female trail runners but um but nia cooper this year um i i went and um ran a bit of um lantau trail um with uh with some of the failures some of us that didn't manage to um to finish the hong kong four trails last year and she was going out running the trans lantau um which would been cancelled but she was doing it as a sort of um uh i mean she was supported by some unbelievable runners lights of uh, uh of john ellis etc but um but seeing her um go out and um and finish she's to do the sort of like four major trails in in one season um and was um uh yeah was was raising um raising funds for for brain cancer i think like I remember seeing her at the end of that and she just looked so fresh and just, um, just, yeah, it was such a terribly tough time for her. I can imagine it, um, it sort of soon after Nick's passing. I think for me, that was, uh, that was, that's definitely been one of the highlights of ones that I've witnessed in, um, in Hong Kong. Yeah. I did a story on, on that, um, sort of just before the, the her, her final one and, uh, before Nick unfortunately passed away. But yeah, I, that's one of those ones where, I know it would have been an incredible story and it would have been uh, well received by the trail running community, but I'm always conscious sometimes when it's such a sensitive issue where, where the line is of me, if I seem, if I seem to be going along sort of, Oh, Nick's stories, Nick's death's going to make a great story or, or whether I'm being sensitive and going along and saying, I'm giving this the light that it deserves. So having done a story on it before it, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to, step on Nia's personal journey too much uh, by like plastering of the SMP. But in the end, like a lot of people got on board and it was probably the kind of thing I should have covered in hindsight. But uh, 
I was trying to be sensitive. Yeah, no, it's certainly an incredible journey from over a few months. I think our first 100K was really, a, a, really a, a difficult process for her, reflecting on the impending, um, uh, uh, the impending death of, of Nick. But uh, and then by the end, it was like a whole character arc of. Yeah, a lot of respect for to you for um for having that kind of integrity and the editorial like your journalistic integrity there. I think one thing that that I would say is that you've built up such a um a credibility within the ultra running community in um in Hong Kong and your coverage that um I don't think anyone would have would have even considered that you were using that story as an opportun in an opportunistic way. Um I can't see anyone viewing that as anything but like a celebration of an amazing, amazing feat and, um, and, uh, and celebration of an amazing guy. I think, you know, we talk about the, the Hong Kong, there's an amazing Facebook group, uh, the Hong Kong trail running, um, group and that, that Nick started. And, um, I think you're a, you're a massive contributor in that. Um, but, yeah, uh, a lot, but I think a lot of shares on both on levels. <laughs> Yeah, 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 spamming it all with your. But I mean, you know, you like you said, you share like great, great content. And um, okay, so like any any other. So we're going to have to expand it to top five. So I know this is we're freestyling here, but um, um, what, um, what yeah, there's there's this one which probably missed your radar because it wasn't trail running so much. But uh, there was a Hong Konger last year who rode the Atlantic from uh, Lagomera to. Uh, the Canary Islands, oh no, Lagomera is the Canary Islands, from Lagomera to uh, Antigua in 39 days, um, which is always a cool story. I, I, I love ocean rowing. Uh, but uh, the reason that I love this one in particular is because I gave him the idea. There's a, a few photos from a junk where everybody's chatting or posing for the photos, and you can see off in the back of the background of the junk, him and I standing together, passing backwards and forwards a bottle of rum, and uh, I know what conversation we're having in those photos. I, I'm saying, oh, yeah, in December, I'm going to try and row the Atlantic. And he's saying, row the Atlantic? I, I never, no idea people did that. And I'm saying, yeah, and I'm explaining it to him. And he's by half down, halfway down the bottle, he said, I'm doing it. I'm your reserve. I, I want to be in. I want to be in your team. And God, I have so many people who say that to me. I want to row the Atlantic. I want to row the Atlantic. And I've got, I just sort of nod along and say, well, you know, if you enter, if you buy a boat, I'll, I'll help you out in any way you can, but I'm not going to take you seriously if you do. And then he called me the next day and he's like, I'm deadly serious. I'm deadly serious. I want in. But unfortunately, I, I had a team of four at the time and we didn't want to go with the five. So he was my reserve. And then, uh, <clears throat> then he waited and waited a few weeks. And then he called me again and said, look, I can't. I can't wait to be your reserve. I've got to take the ball by the horns. He was offered a promotion to go to Singapore. He turned it down. He moved back to London because he thought he'd be better able to plan it there. That was like, the, that's the commitment that you need <laughs> um, to, to even get to the start line. So a huge amount of respect for him. And then he got across. And yeah, I'm insanely jealous and equally happy for him at the same time. And that, that, that was one of my favorite stories to cover. I, I did a pre, pre-race story and a, a post-race story as well. I, I just, yeah, that was... So cool to go from, I just, basically what I love, what I, what, what I love is people who back their chat <laughs> because I hear so many people uh, promise me that they're going to do X, Y, and Z, but you're not what you say, you are what you do. And he pulled out all the stops and did it. And for that, he has my eternal respect. <laughs> 
That's amazing. And you must uh, love having been a bit of an inspiration and um, in terms of chatting to about it, giving the idea in the first place. That's, um, that, that's very yeah, well, cool. Yeah, I, I, I think, bloody hell, I wish he wasn't my reserve. <laughs> you should have joined his crew. So he did it in a team Yeah, well, by well. the end, I was like, anybody dropping out? Like, I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant um yeah i mean look we we don't just cover trail running on the um on the podcast we've got uh we've had a few uh a few rowers in fact we've got someone that kayaked around new zealand coming on the podcast uh lim patterson red coming on on shortly so um yeah love um and yeah we, we'll, we'll get into so yeah you talk about saying you're going to do something we'll get we'll get into something you say you're going to do um shortly um the, um but I was just finishing up on a, on a couple of the highlights of like Hong Kong. Um, I mean, you've got a, um, I, I don't know if you saw it. I'm sure you did, but, um, but one of the finishers, of the Hong Kong four trails this year, um, Chang, he did a, um, he, uh, was it a double Lantau 70 or he did like he a hundred mile. He, he did the Lantau 70 course and then the trans Lantau course back to back. Immediately fun. after. Yeah, on like and it, and it was a hot weekend solo and that dude is just <clears throat> impressive like he's he's amazing like he is an absolutely amazing runner um yeah and, I, I, met uh, guy, uh, sorry, I, I met him this year i did a pre hong kong four trail story on him and he's just a cool dude who just loves running he's just <laughs> he's just as simple as that <laughs> And he's like this cool Korean dude that like has got this Spanish accent, and he's just like uh, I don't know, he's just got this. He's just like a, he's, he's, he's a like enigma thing around him. He's um yeah, he's and, and just and his run at the end of the four trails to get in under under sixty hours, the the, the pace that he did running down off of Lantau Peak was just um, oh sorry, of Sunset Peak was just crazy. Um, uh, yeah, another one um, we had on the podcast is um, uh, uh, Myank, Myank Bear. Um, I don't know if you've, um, but he did like the Everest man, um, mm, swam 9,000 yeah, yeah. meters and then Everesting on, on on bike and foot like that for me. is like, I don't, the only person in the world to have done it, done it in Hong Kong. I, I yeah. can't think of too many tougher endurance feats in, that have been done like on the Hong Kong islands. Yeah, I first met Mayank when he uh, did the um, London to Paris triathlon, oh, to it, uh, running yeah, to the yeah. coast and swimming across the channel. Oh, and it's like, um, he did that a couple of years ago, and then he did it again solo. Am I right? Out, uh, so he did it yeah he did it in tandem he did it in tandem with someone uh, originally the yeah. first year, and then he went back and, and got the yeah. got the world record on his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he, and then I covered the Everest Man thing as well, which is pretty cool, just because of the. Uh, um, like the monotony is just a different, you know, a different level. It's a, just a whole other variable to add in. When you talk about being in the pain cave and pushing through, but you're in beautiful locations, that's one thing. But to go up and down the same path over and over is just a whole other variable that makes things uh, not exciting to watch, but certainly like uh, exciting to think about introspectively about the, <laughs> the aspect of the challenge. Yeah, it's never going to be a spectator sport, is it? But I mean, yeah. um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, having said that, like trail running, uh, like UTMB coverage over the last few years has, uh, has picked it's so up. So good, in, that uh, coverage. Yeah. Yeah, they the do a good job, great. don't they? Yeah. 
yeah. Um, I'm interested because I, I know that you you obviously cover outdoor sports, but one thing I've noticed you cover over the over the last few years as well is uh, is CrossFit and the CrossFit Games. Um, yeah. Wh- uh, what's your? Because it's not kind of outdoor, but it's kind of endurance. Like, um, yeah, yeah. Wh- I mean, what's your it's, it's sort of a it's sort of a grey area, and nobody really knows whose remit it fits into. Um, like my title's Outdoor and Extreme, so somebody decided it was extremely fit. Um, and it is it is cool. I, I like I like CrossFitters as well for the same reason as I like trail runners because they're able to sort of go into a different place in their mind to get through these these incredibly difficult challenges, albeit very, very different. Uh, and it is, yeah, it's just huge. Tra- CrossFit is huge. Like, the numbers... I mean, we don't write the writing for numbers and is is not all is not the be all and end all, but it is sometimes just crazy just to see how many people are reading uh, a story about CrossFit. The the recently there was a controversy from the CEO did a tweet. It was the top story on the SEMP, not on sports, on the SEMP like three days. Is that it's right? Yeah, because he—I—I I forget what his tweet. It was during the Black Lives Matter movement, and um, I forget either how controversial or the the exact context. But um, but yeah, it was a minefield during that time. But it was just completely out of touch, wasn't it? Yeah, he he said um, it was like a response to there was something like the institution of health. I can't remember exactly. They said something along the lines of public health being a, a racism being a public health issue. Um, I can't remember exactly what their point was, but if I was to guess, I would say that it was about how uh, ethnic minorities and BAME communities are being affected disproportionately from uh, coronavirus. And he replied, it's Floyd-19 in the sort of the, the same format as COVID-19. Um, just that's all his tweet said. And then when that started to go viral, he elaborated and something that didn't even really make that much sense about how he screwed up lockdown and now you expect us to take you seriously on racism, which could, may have been a, a better articulated, may have been a point like, why should we trust you when you've done so badly with controlling coronavirus in, um, in America? It, it could have been a, a point better made. And then it got really bad where he doubled down and said, um, I'm sorry that I used George Floyd, but I wasn't being racist. I'm basically, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. And that's when it was like, come on, man, like just own up to articulating whatever you were trying to say, which wasn't even that clear so terribly. And then that opened the floodgates to sexual harassment at work and uh, a leaked Zoom call where he was saying George Floyd was part of a conspiracy theory um, in kind of fit money. And he was killed for his silence in a laundering ring and uh, coronavirus was started on purpose by the Chinese. It's just, it was just mad. It was, just, it was just like, you, come on. Has he had this, to stand down? Is he still there? Well, first he, he stood down as CEO, and then he, he still owned the company, so probably sort of said, this isn't really standing down. And then he had to sell the company to a guy called Eric Rosa, which happened, uh, went through this week. Um, and in the meantime, a lot of gyms sort of de-affiliated and athletes promised never to compete in CrossFit again. And it was, um, yeah, it was about three weeks of, it's just like continuously evolving story. And uh, it's sad that uh, he would have those views. And he, he, he's, he says his mind that the CEO, and it's not always right, like sort of conspiracy theory nonsense. Sometimes it's incredibly liberal, like his stance on transgender people being able to compete in CrossFit. Um, 
but uh, it's sad that he would uh, take to the take to the air and just have such an I mean, ill foot through view. Yeah, I mean, as as the CEO of an organisation, you're um, yeah, you represent it, and uh, and the I think that you know, there's a chance that it's going to have like a major detriment to the sport in general, right? Um, and you say that participation is so high, but do you reckon it can, uh, do you reckon it will survive it? Uh, yeah, I think so. For two reasons. One, they've got Eric Rosser in and, that, and uh, I'm sure he'll do great things with the business, but whether he does or doesn't, like the, super, the, the superficial nature of changing CEO and ownership is enough probably for most people. They probably don't care enough beyond like angry tweeting to actually act on their outrage. Um, and secondly, you know, like what is, what is the sport? You know, the company CrossFit owns a sport and it's a complicated one because it's a few sports where the company and the sport are the same thing. But on the other hand, like it has started a, a sport that's wider than CrossFit Inc. You know, there's strongman or rogue invitationals as a whole circuit in, in the Middle East of people getting quite a lot of prize money for doing what is CrossFit, but basically they just choose not to use the name. So it'd be a bit like the CEO of Premier League saying something controversial and everybody saying, I'm never going to play for the Premier League again, but it's not the end of football. Yeah, no, I, I, I see that completely. I mean, one of the questions I want to ask you around it was, I've, I've often thought about who are the best athletes, like all round, um, if you take into account um, in, endurance, like, a, like aerobic or anaerobic or like strength or endurance, who do you see as the sort of all round athlete? Because you're not going to have like, like you're not going to have uh, Chris Froome like smashing out 150k deadlift, are you? I mean, um, I mean, he probably could to be fair, but like, you know, that. Yeah, I'm interested in your take on who you see as like the, the the best athletes in the world. Yeah, well, I guess it depends how you define it because uh, certainly like CrossFitters are probably some of the best all-rounders in the world. There's nobody who could who could do all of the things that they do, and that's why they get called the fittest person on earth when they are when they win the CrossFit Games. But on the other hand, they probably wouldn't win any of those events individually against. Um, uh, uh, if they had to run a 10k against a 10k runner or a deadlift against a, uh, a weightlifter or a swim against a swimmer but uh, so their range is huge I, I would like to see a decathlete like Jennifer, Jennica, Je Jessica Ennis Hill I'd love to see her mm -hmm. take part in the CrossFit Games because you know she sprints she shot putt she high jumps and as part of her training, I have no doubt she has a huge variety from snatches and, and uh, cleans to long distance running to sprints. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, she, and she's won Olympic gold. So that, that, that would be that as far as other like specific sports is, you know, one that actually takes in a huge range. Decathlon is something that would probably do quite well in, in, in CrossFit, but, it's difficult to tell. Yeah. And it depends That's on definition. Yeah. Like heptathlon, decathlon. Um, I, I also think like for me, OCR athletes as well are, are up there as, I mean, it's just kind of similar yeah. to. That obstacle course racing. 
Yeah, obstacle course racing. Yeah, so the yeah, Spartan. Um... They had a they had a guy. What was his name? Was something Hunter? This year, the, he got a wild card invitation to the CrossFit Games last year. He's a multiple time obstacle course racing champion, and yeah, he didn't last long. <laughs> Did he not? It, what, yeah. He didn't last long in the um, uh, in yeah CrossFit in game. the CrossFit Games. It was like this year the CrossFit Games. They had cuts for the first time. You. Usually everybody lasts the whole weekend, but they started this time with like 150 athletes and then it went down to 70 and then all the way down to 10. And I'm not sure if he got through the first cut. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that they're, they're kind of a different build as well. Like the CrossFit Games, like they're, they're holding a lot more muscle, but they, they also like have like half marathon trail runs in, in the CrossFit Games now. They have mountain biking. So yeah, I think, I think an aspect of CrossFit is that there's skill involved in um something like a snatch or a rope climb or peg climb um and although somebody is probably trained with pull-ups or and can pull themselves over an obstacle they uh they would take time to transfer that fitness into the skill aspect of snatches and deadlifts um and uh, rope climb or maybe not deadlifts but rope climbs and those sort of things which i think they could do you know, in much quicker than somebody else who's coming from another sport. But to get a wild card invitation a few months out and then to be expected to be able to do efficient to snatches compete. and efficient yeah. rope climbs is probably too much and proved too much in the end. Yeah, I, I'm going to throw a wild card in there. I'm I'm obsessed by mixed martial arts. It's probably my, my the sport that I watch most and. Um, and I honestly believe that they are some of the best athletes in the world. Like the level of training and you talk about skill, the techniques, all the different multiple, like whether it be wrestling, jujitsu, taekwondo, like karate, kickboxing, Muay Thai, the amount of different disciplines they have to train and learn within that. Um, I'd like to, yeah, I think they could be thrown in the mix as we are to have like, a, uh, we have a best athlete in the world. Um, cool, man. Look, I'm, one of the other main reasons that I wanted to get you on the podcast and Rick and I wanted to chat was that um, you talk about like putting your goals out there and, uh, um, and you put, uh, like I want you to sort of share a bit about your background in ocean rowing, your passion for it, but you've got a pretty interesting goal in the, in the diary coming up. So uh, like, firstly, what's your, your, you mentioned uh, before that you've, you've had a couple of attempts of, um, of crossing the Atlantic. Um, yeah. How did you, how did they sort of come about? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've tried to run the Atlantic twice, once in 2016 and once in 2018, and under very sort of different circumstances. Uh, there's two ways to row the Atlantic, or, or do any, any ocean row, I suppose. One is to organize yourself, which is hugely time-consuming. It's a job on top of a job. Um, and uh, the second is a paper place, which maybe a captain is crossing the Atlantic and he's selling spots in his boat. Generally cheaper because the boats are bigger. It's generally easier logistically because you're paying him to deal with it all you just turn up and row so i did a paper place in 2016 and the captain i was trying to row the atlantic with just from the beginning evidently was just a complete mad alcoholic you know very sad in fact um but uh, i was young and naive i was only 23 and i wanted to maybe i was 26 um and uh I was willing to take his like his word at, every, at everything uh, that he said, even when I could see issues. 
we were when he finally got to the Canary Islands, we bought the boat and it just wasn't finished and we were still building it. And I would say, hang on, don't we need uh, X or don't we need Y? And he'd say, oh, no, we don't need that. No, that's just to help us said you go mad. And rather than saying, actually, I think we do need that, as I would say now, I was just nodding along and thinking, okay, I have to trust him. He's done this before. And uh, we, we went to see it, basically a completely unseaworthy boat. It was like absolutely mental now that i know more about ocean rowing it was it was in it was insane the when you in on a cabin on an ocean rowing boat there for example there is a hatch you click the hatch shut when you're in there and you, you get out and you click the hatch shut and, it, and it's waterproof i don't know it's probably similar to one on the deck of a yacht if you've ever been sailing and it, <laughs> instead he when he built the boat he cut a square out for the uh cabin door to get in and out and then rather than them putting the door on the water hatch door he just kept the square that he cut out drilled a hole in the middle of it and put some string through it so you like slotted it in and out <laughs> like a kid's toy and um you know that was one of the things i was saying didn't we have proper hatches and took his word for we didn't and ultimately came to fruition was it just the two of you rowing you, you no, rowed so, as a, just a tandem no so we were trying um one of the reasons these paper places tend to be cheaper is because they have bigger crews. And uh, we had 10 people on board, including him, which uh, we, we were saying we're going to set the world record. And the reason we thought we could do that is because we were in a catamaran-shaped boat, uh, two hulls. We thought we'd set, surf the waves much, much quicker. And uh, to be fair, on the second night when there was a, big, a lot of big swells, we were, we were absolutely flying down them. But um, uh, which also meant that we had a bigger crew. So we had four people rowing at once, two on each side and four people sleeping at once, two on each side, uh, in each end of each hull and two people who were taking it in terms of steering. But um, it was that catamaran shape that he used as an excuse for everything. You know, why don't we have waterproof hatches? Oh, you only need waterproof hatches on a, a sort of traditional monohull because uh, the water crashes over the side and you're rocked left and right and you can capsize. But in a catamaran, you're stable. You don't have the waves crash over the back. You surf it because it's so stable. You won't capsize. The it won't rock left and right because it's stable. Uh, you know, why don't we have proper safety harnesses? Instead, we just sort of had a rope around our waist like a 1930s mountaineer. So, well, we're a, we're a multi-house. We're more stable. You won't fall off. Why do we only have a thousand calories a day each? For 12 hours of rowing but it's a multi hull you're not going to burn as many calories as you would on an inefficient did it did he like, need all the space a, for his alcohol yeah I, oh yeah we had we we had a few bins of booze and bloody hell we had a lot of cigarettes um but like uh, yeah, yeah the, the calories in particular because we went for training in august and i had a big fallout with him because we were going to go train rowing for eight hours that night and he wasn't bringing any food he used to say have dinner i don't understand what the problem is have dinner and then have breakfast. Do you usually eat between those two? I'm like, yeah, but I don't usually do eight hours of rowing. Uh, so we had a big fallout over that. And he put me in charge of like divvying up the food when we got to the start line. And I uh, divvied up the food and I was like, wait, what? This is only a thousand calories. This is insane. So uh, we went and just bought as much as we could from like, the local supermarket that wouldn't perish, you know, pepperami and salamis, nuts, olive oil. I was basically going to row the Atlantic on this middle-class antipasti. And even that got me only up to sort of three or 4,000 calories a day, including a protein bag that I brought myself and 
um, it was the second time I tried to ride 6,000 calories a day. Um, but it, it wasn't it wasn't appropriate food. It, uh, even the food that he did have was these microwave casseroles. He didn't have any electricity on board. So, he, he, oh God, I could go, there were so many insane things. It sounds like, like a pretty, it sounds like a, a, a disaster the first attempt. Where, where did you get to? Um, so yeah, I mean, we got we only got about 48 hours in, which is embarrassingly close. But the first day sort of passed without incidents. It was our second night, which was just infectious and exciting. Um, and really is where I fell in love with ocean running, even though the boat was coming apart around me. It was the second night we got into these seven meter swells, which certainly isn't unexpected in the Atlantic, although it's perhaps unexpected just 48 hours in. And we were flying down the back of them because the catamaran, hardly how shape was really doing as he promised. But seven meters, when you're sitting on a rowing boat, which is only half a foot off the ground, and you're sitting there, so you're only 50, 50 centimeters off the ground, you're looking up at this thing, six meters above you, and it looks like it's 30 meters above you. It's just this huge wall of water. Like a swell isn't quite like a wave, it's, a swell is more like a mountain. And you're down in between two of these swells, and, and it is pitch black. There's a seven meter wall behind you, seven meter wall in front of you, and it, it just feels like the water isn't just dark, it feels like it's sucking the air, it's sucking any light in the air out and making it even darker still. It sort of looked like velvet. And it was particularly dark because the lights we did have were these sort of IKEA garden path lights that um, you would, would be solar powered, and we accidentally knocked all of them off of the first like 24 hours because they were complete pants and then uh then over the next few minutes you ride out one of these swells until you're on the top of one of them and you could just see as far as you could see this identical swell after identical swell like rolling towards you and that night was a full moon fortunately so it would like be casting the shadow behind you and then you dive back down into one of those valleys and although the boat was completely unseaworthy and I could see the guys in the back cabin in particular being absolutely hammered. It was just exciting. It wasn't like exciting in an adrenaline pumping kind of way, like doing a bungee jump or a rock climb or something like that, because it was such a slow build. But it was exciting in the sense that for the first time I felt completely content. I was just completely at one with what I was doing and the waves were rolling up behind us and it felt like a marrying of being in nature and pushing myself and also of complete and utter simplicity. There's nothing existential about it. There's no bills or emails or tomorrow. There's only now. And it was so awesome. And I just thought, this is for me. I, I also knew we were probably going to get rescued in the morning but I also knew that I was completely content. But at the same time, I was very aware that the people in the back cabin were being hammered. The back cabins, the waves, some of the waves were cracking over the back and filling up the cabins of water because they didn't have those, uh, they didn't have those waterproof hatches. And, you know, it doesn't sound like much two days, but that's only because it's relative to 40 days that we should have been there. Um, so if you're if you're rowing for two hours and sleeping in three or four inches of water, it saps your energy and makes you hypothermic and puts you in a very dangerous situation. And by the early hours of the second morning, they were barely able to function. So, and one of them in particular started pissing blood. So uh, 
we, we had to get rescued and he sort of took the rap in the end from the captain for being ill but he was ill because he was sleeping in water and we were sleeping in water because the boat was completely unseaworthy. <laughs> How were you rescued? Were you, um, so you, you had someone pull you, pull you ashore? Uh, no, so we got a helicopter that time um, and a uh, helicopter came and there wasn't much English uh, from the crew and we were saying, should we take our, yeah, I, as the helicopter was coming out, the captain told us like, I'll pack a bag. So I put my passport, I put my um, camera and that was it. Oh, you can have a bigger bag than that. It's a helicopter, Mark. Uh, oh, okay. So I put some more clothes in. He's like, Mark, it's a helicopter. Don't be concerned. They can carry an extra few kilograms. So by the end, I had like a whole you know, books and food and uh, photos and cameras and stuff. And then uh, when the, the guys picked us up, you know, they were like, they, they sort of pointed at our bags and we thought they meant, well, we'll pick them up second. And they started flying away and um, um, uh, they, they um, said no of course we're not going to pick up your bags you see the size of them we're not bloody easy jet we've got to get back to shore we're running out of petrol so uh, we lost all of our passports and everything and uh, we're stuck in the canary islands for a few days we arrived on a friday night we just got on a bus one of the guys had stuffed like a thousand pounds in his pocket because he just bought a big wad of cash in the event of a emergency and Thank God he did. And we were then on a bus and we were bitching about it and sort of talking about how insane the captain was. And somebody in the front of us said, excuse me, I can't overhear what you're saying. Am I hearing you correctly? And we over-explained and he said, I, I can't hear this and not help. So he called around all of his friends and eventually found us this big flat and paid for it and said, like, why am I back when you're done? And um, then we just spent three days sort of stuck in the Canary Islands and in our own company That's, we just got more so and they more would active. have just left they would have just left the boat just uh, the boat was um was left to be destroyed with the by the waves yeah that was worthless and it's floating yeah. away somewhere like this i mean like yeah i think we could have gone and collected it now that i know because my second boat was collected but uh, i don't think it was worth it <laughs> Yeah. Um, and so you did attempt a second time. Um, the second time you went as a, in tandem, right? Just with one other person? Yeah, the second, uh, well, I was, I was like basically in the helicopter on the way back to land. And, and the, first, the first attempt didn't really affect me. I was already thinking like, how am I going to do this again? How am I going to do this properly now? And I, I got three friends together, which quickly turned into uh, two, two other friends, which you know, tries a trio. And um, it, it's, it's just, such a massive amount of admin to get to the start line you've really got to commit from about 18 months out make it your priority you can't have any other things going on and um and there's so many variables in there a lot of it depends on sponsorship which is so out of your control you can ask a million people and get a million no's or you can ask one and get yes um so it, unfortunately as a as a, a group we didn't get to the start line but i was entirely ready to go and uh, it's always been my dream to be the first person to row the Northwest Passage. So it was a bit of pressure on myself because um, I, I felt like I needed to get the Atlantic done first before I signed up to something like the Northwest Passage. And to be the first, it meant that somebody else had to do it before anybody else tried. So I called the race organizers and said, look, my team's dropping out, but I'm ready to go. Is there anybody else who's had a person drop out and they, Put me in contact with this um, with a with a with a woman who is uh, uh, was seemed very organized or well, was very organized, super organized, which was 
what we lacked uh, perhaps the first time with our other crew to get a start line and and we set off as 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 a tandem and it's a much less spectacular story about how it all ended but uh when it did end this time i was just just distraught like for the first couple of weeks i thought ah it's ended again you get up you take it on the chin you move on but as i began to reflect on just the fact that uh, how much time and money and effort i put in over two years i was just devastated um for six 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 months or something um because as soon as i'd heard about people rowing oceans it's all i'd wanted to do as soon as i'd heard that people row the atlantic and then i'd heard that nobody rode the northwest passage these are the two things that i'd focused on for years and i was so passionate about doing them and i've made so many sacrifices but after the second attempt i didn't want to try again I wanted to want to try again, but I just couldn't bring myself to want to do it, if that very clumsy sentence makes sense. And I felt like for reasons out of my control and other people who hadn't met me halfway, just they, they, they'd taken a passion from me. And it was a real like identity crisis. Just great. Okay, I'm just going to work in an office now because I don't even want to be an adventurer anymore. And, and it, it got worse and then it started like filtering into my work uh, and into my relationships. And I was just felt terrible, like really terrible for, for, for sort of six, six months or so till probably July or August last year. How did you get out of your, of your funk um, on it? What, what was it that, that, uh, that helped yeah, you? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess one thing is time. Time heals all wounds. Um, another one is talking to, is my job, like interviewing people who are doing inspiring stuff. In one sense, it made me worse because it just made me jealous every time somebody achieved something. It, in particular, rowing the Atlantic, whenever I saw somebody row the Atlantic, it just felt like sort of a direct slap in the face that other people were showing how easy it was and how pathetic I was. Um, and... Uh, but then thirdly, sort of after one particular instance where I really lost my temper about it, over something that was not related at all and was unfair to lose my temper at somebody over, um, I was like, I've got to actually make a proactive effort here to not, to not let this like seep into everything I do. And, um, and during training in particular for the Atlantic, I'd come up with these mantras and these ways to push through the lows of lows that I would experience in the middle of the Atlantic when I didn't want to keep pushing. And I started saying, right, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to maybe apply these to uh, my normal life instead of my ocean rowing life and get myself out of a low of a low at the moment. And uh, the first one that I sort of took the first, I give a talk now called lessons and failure. I call it my mental pyramid, which, um, is just sort of a way to um, clearly articulate it in a talk. But one aspect of it is is that uh, I was just doing it. Just take pride in the fact that you are doing something. Is there's, there's a saying <clears throat> which I hear all the time: uh, those who think they can and those who think they can't are both probably right. And it's all about how just thinking you can means you can, and it's all very pat on the back. And I just think that's absolute rubbish. Because those who think they can and those who think they can't are the same. It's those who do and those who don't that are different. 
So in the Atlantic, my plan was to say, do you feel terrible? Yes. Are you doing it anyway? Yes. Who else is doing it? Not the other people who said they would. Like, <laughs> not the tens and tens of people who, are, who told me they would row the Atlantic one day. And I would just take strength from the fact that I was simply doing it and take strength from the action of doing it. Um, with, uh, but then I had to find something to do <laughs> because right now I was like, well, I'm not doing anything. Um, and uh, uh, I found another ocean rowing boat to row across the Atlantic and they, they would take me and that was supposed to be last March, but um, my, my work said, look, we can't really give you more time off. And I was sitting at my desk thinking, am I going to quit my job for this? Is that how much I want it? And almost exactly the same day, the man we were talking about earlier, Mayank Vade, emailed me and said, hey, Mark, I know you're an ocean kayaker, which was incorrect, but it was lucky that he made that incorrect assumption. I know somebody who wants to kayak down the Yukon, which is a river from um, British, uh, from the Yukon region in Canada all the way through to Alaska. Uh, can I put you in touch with him? Um, that very day after um, trying to decide whether or not to row the Atlantic or not again. Uh, so I got put in contact with him and um, it came at the exact right moment in my life. And uh, we signed up to kayak a thousand miles down the Yukon together in a race that was 18 hours of kayaking a day for 10 days, uh, unsupported by yourself, all of the things that um, I would love. Um, and uh, it, it, it got me back on the horse. That race didn't happen because of coronavirus. I was supposed to be there last week, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, the but the pulling me out of my own self pity was uh, the uh, thankfully it was already done. Like the uh, by simply uh, and up. and so the the guy that you were supposed to kayak the Yukon with, um, you mentioned you've already mentioned that the Northwest Passage, which is um, which is one of the last world firsts. Um, is you know the the round the Atlantic was the stepping stone towards that much like a mountaineer for example might do um, one of the other eight Choyo and then go and climb Everest um, it's kind of a stepping stone and uh, you know if you don't get that first summit in then it, it makes you feel that um, that you might not be able to 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 get the big one in so but has the northwest passage always been in your mind as a uh, as a challenge to take on yeah i mean i uh, yes yeah, so i don't think we've even explained yet uh, so my what i'm doing next july is i'm going to try and attempt to be the first person to row the northwest passage which is the arctic route from the atlantic to the pacific you sort of go up between greenland and canada through all of the archipelago and then out through the tiny gap uh, between Alaska and uh, and Russia, and for most of the year it is frozen. The sea is frozen. Canada is attached to the North Pole by ice, but that melts for a few well, most weeks. of the history of the world. It's been frozen, right? Yeah, yeah. Until well, I mean, um, it always melts a little bit in summer, but now over the last ten years, it melts for long enough that somebody could possibly row through. And if you compare it to Rolf Amerson, who was the first person to make it through the whole way, he was he had a motor boat and a sailboat, and it still took him over three years because he would make a little bit of headway in the few days that was summer, and then he would his boat would get frozen in all over again, and then about eleven months down the line, he'd have a few weeks to get forward, and it would happen again. Whereas now we have sort of three months possibly to row through. Not every year, but we're hoping next year. Um, 
and that has always been well like a polar world first has always been in the back of my mind because i'm like really interested in the polar history of you know i mean everybody loves shackleton and scott and amberston and all, reading all of these books but for me in particular it, it seems to let's put a, um, a hook in my mind so then when i when my friends said let's row the atlantic together um i started googling and whatever and, and and then that's when i found that people don't just row the atlantic they row all sorts of oceans and there was one guy called levin brown who rowed the atlantic god know how many times in the indian ocean and all sorts um and he had uh, mentioned that he wanted to be the first person to row the northwest passage so two weeks before my first attempt i called him and i said you don't know who i am but my name is mark agnew and i really want to be the first person to row the northwest passage i know you do too so i'm going to call you when i get to the other side and we're going to make this happen obviously it didn't happen and then it didn't happen again but i got to know even better over the next few years and uh, then he put up uh, a more concrete uh, post rather than just sort of something on the back burner but i'm going to try and row the northwest passage in 2021 and uh, i gave him a call again i said you know i'm keen on this uh, do i have to row the atlantic as like a sort of a cv tick what do you uh, what, what do you need from me um but he fortunately accepted me on the team without the northwest without the atlantic crossing under my belt the um because well i, I guess it's for him to say but um on, on both attempts i had to deal with a bit of like a mini crisis in either sense and, and i did which is valuable in its own way i was gonna say of, actually mark possibly I, I, more than uh, and I'm like, yeah who knows who knows um, I guess, and, and obviously you're in a you're in a lot of pain after the, those last the six months after the second attempt. You can see it like visibly, like cut you deep, and took a bit of um, recovery time mentally more than anything to be able to get over that failure. But there, there's the huge argument that if you had done the Atlantic the first time and it had been plain sailing, that you'd like you know you'd because. A lot of the time, that kind of like Atlantic crossing, your prevailing winds, uh, you can't just row it purely rowing it. You're hoping on the prevailing winds to be able to get you across. And, um, and you could have had it plain sailing and you, you wouldn't have learned anything like you've learned in the two failures that, um, that you've had. Um, do you think there's some, some credence there that actually you're, you're probably better positioned now than you would have been if you'd have like smashed the Atlantic on the first attempt? Yeah, absolutely. I think the second one in particular, just the, or the second failure of the month afterwards is will in hindsight probably be like the making of me. Um, in in the same way, that, I mean, it's not to say that I wouldn't, that it would have been worse if I'd read the Atlantic. If if my partner, had, uh, she she was struggling a little bit just to life at sea and we called to get picked up. And uh, by the time the boat got there, I decided to get off too because we were having power issues. And I was like, am I going to row the Atlantic by myself with power issues? And if I had rowed the Atlantic by myself, I'm sure I would have got similar things out of it. So that's not to say I'm better off, but certainly I am better off than I was before in either outcome. I've, I felt so overwhelmed by the decision whether or not to get off the boat the second time as it came towards me, as it took 36 hours for a yacht to come. I just felt so utterly overwhelmed. It felt like an actual physical like, weight in my stomach. 
you know, when people talk about terror in the pit of their stomach, um, I thought that would just be like being very, very scared or very, 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 very scared. But it just didn't feel like the same emotion at all. It just felt like, like just this hole in my intestines. It was just pulling on everything. And I just couldn't see clearly as to whether or not I was um, overwhelmed by emotion and wanted to get off or whether I was making a rational decision and actually rowing the Atlantic just three days in and doing the whole thing solo when the batteries weren't charging was reckless or whether it's the kind of thing you should push through. Um, But this sounds so lame and like a LinkedIn quote that people share, (laughs) but uh, like that sort of terror actually felt in my stomach it feels like it's solidified into uh, a, a sort of not give up attitude, which I didn't have before. Like I did the Hong Kong hundred earlier this year, which is my first hundred K. Um, I, I mean, I hadn't even done 50 K uh, a year and a half ago and 12 uh, K in to the, the Hong Kong hundred, my left knee completely and utterly blew out. It felt like there was sand in the joints I had to go down the hill sideways and every step was making me grimace, like really sore. And I just don't think I, w- and I got through the Hong Kong hundred sideways basically. And I just don't think I would have finished something. I don't, I don't think I would have finished the Hong Kong hundred had I not already gone through the lows of the post row, um, sort of dealing with reflecting with uh, who I am and why I gave up. Or, or whether or not that even constitutes giving up and, and answering those sort of questions that I had never been forced to answer before. So certainly I have benefited from it. Um, and also from the actual physical experiences on the day, I kept my head in both scenarios and didn't, didn't panic. And that's something I should be proud of, I suppose. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot to be said in retreating. Um, I mean, we've had uh, Grant Axe Rawlinson on that's retreated and three attempts of crossing the Tasman, right? And he's, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of bravery in, um, in having to, uh, in, in saying no, that the time is done. So Northwest Passage, wh- when's it happening? Wh- what's the, um, yeah, uh, what's the schedule? Um, so July next year, <clears throat> we're starting from a place called Pond Inlet, which is at the top of Baffin Island. Um, and, uh, Last year, the ice broke up at Pond Inlet on the 11th of July, so we would leave on the 11th of July. This year, the ice has broken up a little bit earlier, so we'd leave at the end of June. Um, God knows when it will break up next year, um, but it will be in position at the end of June to, to, to go. And then it should and the team? Be, this year, the, the team is super experienced. Um, we uh, A lot of the people I met already from the 2018 crossing I was part of a race, so there was a lot of other teams on the start line. And um, I, I met one of them as a, a guy across solo, one of them crossed a team of four, three of them did a, a team together and set the mixed record. Um, a few of them rode the Atlantic a few years earlier. A few of them don't have ocean rowing experience per se, but um, certainly have other relevant experience in mountaineering or ultra running. Um, I'd probably say having only failed to row the Atlantic twice I'm the least experienced uh, but it is a bit of a sort of an Avengers of ocean rowing we're supposed to go in three boats how many of there are you I'm oh, sorry three boats well, okay three boats of five which is 15 um, 
uh, in total. But uh, that's a lot of variables to get to a start line. So, you know, it could be two. But we think that there is safety in numbers, uh, certainly because there's nobody to rescue you up there if one of you is in trouble. But also because seeing on the teams that have attempted in the past and failed, you know, spend a lot of energy and time. Doing, in the Atlantic, if it's compared to the Atlantic, if the wind's going in the wrong direction or a storm comes, there's not a lot you can do. You put out your sea anchor and you wait it out. But in the Northwest Passage, there's cliffs you can get blown into. There's sea ice you can get blown into. So you sometimes will have to get to shore. Now to pull up onto sand and, and wait, or maybe even put on some harnesses and haul it um, through shallow water if you're able to. And we think just having uh, 10 to 15 people, whether we go in two or three boats, will uh, make that aspect of the adventure a lot easier rather than wasting a lot of time with four people or five people trying to pull a one-ton boat up onto the beach. Um, so we're going in two boats as a sort of a mini armada. Interesting. Well, mate, it's, um, yeah, I can't wait to, to follow it. And as someone that sort of like followed uh, quite and, and researched a lot around the polls, I'm a, I'm a massive like Shackleton fan. Like I think endurance is one of my favorite books and, um, uh, and yeah, that's going to be uh, an exciting one. And, and like training wise, you've got, um, uh, it's a year out. Um, have you put in a pretty rigorous training plan to get in shape for it? Yeah. Well, the, um, We've got one of the guys as a personal trainer. He, he rode in the, in the Atlantic race in 2015. And one of the other team members was um, a guy called Ollie Cook, who's in the, the Cockless Four for GB in the Olympics. And the Cockless Four GB have won the gold every year since 2000. So he literally might be one of the best four rows in the world. But unfortunately, the Olympics has been moved. So now it um, passes with our attempts. So he's no longer in the team, but he's going to help out with the training program. So between the two of them, we, uh, we have a lot of knowledge. Uh, on what we need and, and people would assume that a lot of it is rowing and a lot of it is endurance sort of classic endurance um, training but it's actually a huge aspect to it is is like strength and injury prevention like single leg stuff evening up the side of your body because the boat's just so heavy like doing each stroke is more like a deadlift than it is like rowing if i told you you've got to you've got to push a one ton concrete square for a mile. Would you do running and cardio and get your heart rate to 165 and hold it there for an hour? You might incorporate an aspect to that, but ultimately you probably do a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of muscular endurance to, to try and get that uh, concrete block moving. And that's similar to ocean rowing where uh, you need to be strong, you need to be resilient. And if you can do 10K in 35 minutes, it doesn't matter as long as you can do 10K again and again and again, and you can still do it after a week. You can still do it after two weeks. You can still do it after two months. <laughs> Uh, yeah and i'm sure there's also an aspect of it where you've uh you've kind of you don't want to be wiry you actually need to have some like a good storage of fat on you right both both because of like insulation but also you're gonna burn it over the and how long how long's the uh, the um the adventure expedition gonna take well i mean the weather makes such a massive difference that uh, like you know freakishly good year it could be four weeks but we're sort of preparing for eight plus weeks but the ultimately like it's got to be around it's got to be around eight weeks or less because then the sea just breezes over and we and we can't do it 
so eight weeks sort of deadline <laughs> yeah and and you're going to burn a lot of calories in that time you don't want to be uh you don't want to be turning up with 10 percent body fat you need to Especially be um yeah we'll in the cold yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll lose 15 kilograms or something you lose 10 across, oh. the, across the Atlantic, I'd lose 10, but with the added aspect of just your body working to stay warm, I mean, it could be 15. But, uh, and, you know, keeping weight on is not something I've ever struggled with, so <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm especially but worried about that aspect. You're going to be, um, as well as the strength stuff, you're going to be obviously getting on out on the water around Hong Kong. Mm. Any, uh, any specific challenges that you've like, uh, I think it's always good to do a challenge before the challenge. What have we, uh, yeah. what have we got lined up? Any marquee ones? The co- I row with the, the, the Royal Hong Kong Yacht Club and they have a really good coastal rowing section. And in December, they have a round the island race. It's about 45k. Um, and that's one that I haven't been able to do because the other times when I've been in rowing shape, it's sort of been around the same about time that I'm actually going to row the Atlantic. So I haven't either been here or wanted to do a big tough race just a week before. Um, but this year, the timing works out. So uh, uh, doing it in a team of four, strangely, with a guy who's the first person to row in the Arctic, um, but who I met by complete coincidence who happens to live in Hong Kong. So uh, <laughs> um, me and him will do that together and a couple of other friends as well. Very cool. Well, um, mate, it's uh, it's a, an exciting challenge. Imagine, uh, yeah, like being able to get a world first done. That will be, um, yeah, that will um, that will be one for the one for the books. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, there's a long way. There's so. I mean, as I've learnt time and again, there's so much to do between now and the start line, and so much of it is out of your control. You know. Um, particularly fundraising i don't know when this podcast is going to be out i might be giving you a scoop but uh because uh, we're going to announce it but one of our uh, one of our things is we're launching our own gin which is one of our ways to fund it the gin is uh made with flavored with botanicals from the northwest passage is distilled in orkney where 90 percent of the hudson bay company employees came from and they're responsible for mapping most of the northwest passage and hopefully it's distilled with water from uh, the same well that Captain Cook and others used to fill up their boats before they went off to explore the Northwest Passage. Uh, that's one of our sort of unique fundraising ways. But or, And then the other one is just simply like uh, contacting lots of sponsors. I mean, if I compare it to the Atlantic, for example, the Atlantic is certainly like PR, huge PR opportunities there, but it's sometimes a bit harder to sort of articulate with one of 30 boats going on this race that has been done for 20 years or so but it's just so it's been into the end of the northwest passage if i can compare it to something like the first people to do the drake passage this year or uh or, or the people who set world records for rowing across the atlantic like it just it just ends up in a media like frenzy the, the last people to do it were on jimmy fallon and uh, to do the drake passage they were on jimmy fallon and talking in parliament and so it's slightly easier because you can get your message across to big companies. It's a bit easier like, hey, look, when we do this with your support, you're going to be from everything from CNN to BBC, which makes life easier. But having said that, it's all out of our control trying to fund it, and um, which, makes, uh, uh, which makes a task within itself and one that you've got to be used to failure on because you're going to get more no's and yeses. <laughs> 
yeah well having been a salesman most of my career i can uh, i can empathize with that you've got to yeah you have to um have to deal with the no's before you find the yes and um and yeah i i think that at least you're realistic around the amount of work that needs to go into um before you can actually like set sail in june next year but um mm. how much is it going to cost the whole expedition well it's um big i mean the Atlantic is about hundred thousand pounds between four people. If you were to, uh, if you wanted a good boat and you wanted to win the race or set a record, and then the Northwest Passage is probably going to be seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds between all of us, just because the everything polar is just ten times more expensive for logistical reasons. The equipment you need, equipment and just admin and shipping and yeah, it like it's just. A lot more expensive and another thing that might make it even more expensive although we're hoping to get somebody to fund this separately is we've got a we're getting a film made by the guy who won the emmy for blue planet the cameraman for blue planet um he's he's uh he's agreed to make our film and is helping a lot and he's releasing a like a pilot in the next couple of days of like uh of a potential movie um, and then hopefully Red Bull or BBC or somebody will decide to make a, a documentary about it. So that's one of our big selling points for sponsors. But uh, yeah, that will um, be cool. Yeah, yeah, a lot of money, seven hundred fifty thousand. We got people interested at the moment to give maybe a hundred or two hundred thousand because it is going to be when we get going. It's going to be in every, it's going to when we finish in particular. It's going to be everywhere, especially if we have a documentary. But there's always an uphill yeah, I love the way you say when we finish, not if we finish. That's yeah, yeah, you've got it. You've got to write it. Yeah, I, I, it's. Uh, it, I'm sure it's one of those ones that will capture the captures people people's imagination. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm excited to um, to to see it happen. Um, uh, Mr. Agnew, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure um, coming on. Like, uh, we'll. Um, yeah, we'll have to um, we'll have to do a follow up and and check on your progress over over the next year. But you know, like, thank you for all your, all your contributions to the uh, um, to the outdoor community, both in Hong Kong and across Asia. Uh, I think that um, you just do shine a spotlight on the uh, uh, on on what we do. Uh, you also need to bring back your um, your your podcast as well, the SEMP, the Asia Trail podcast. I used to like really enjoy that. You've got some amazing people on there. Um, yeah, you need to you need to um, re- bring it back. Well, th- yeah. Well, thanks very much. I mean, firstly, it's very easy to cover um, the Asia endurance world and the world of endurance in general because it's full of such interesting people it's not very difficult to come up with an angle when people were doing such awesome stuff and also are so willing to share it. Um, but in terms of the podcast, yeah, I think that uh, the capacity for sports podcast at the SEMP is not as big as one would expect. And we got usurped by the MMA people. Um, well, you'll be happy to hear because if you're a fan. Oh, of have they? I didn't even know they had one. I'm going like, to I'll have to tune in. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, that's the, I listen to more MMA podcasts than any others. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, uh, you'll enjoy uh, that. They get big sports. Um, but yeah, I mean, thank you very much for having me on. It's been uh, really awesome, and uh, I feel like we've covered a lot, a range of topics. And uh, hopefully, you'll have me on in a year when I say, "Oh, Mark Agnew, first person to row the Northwest Passage," or you'll yeah, have me on as a eulogy when I float face down somewhere in the Arctic. Ocean. <laughs> 
let, let's not say that. Let's uh, no. We were like it sounds like you're in with a, you've got a pretty strong crew this time, and um, uh, and yeah, excited to hear how the progress goes. But um, but yeah, thanks for joining us, sir. We'll um, we'll catch up very soon. Yeah, thank you. Like the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining because things ain't that bad. Hey, Mr. Rick Stockfist. Hello, sir. Hey, Scott. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Um, what a, a pleasurable chat with uh, with Mr. Agnew. Yeah, just uh, really, really well spoken, wasn't it? It's, uh, it's nice talking to someone who's, who's, who's taken the time to really think about what they're doing and why and, and, um, and, and question that. Um, I thought it was really... Uh, Really interesting chat. Yeah, it's like just chatting to a mate, you know. It's a bit like uh, just us two chatting as well. I, I had uh, uh, fired up a couple of a uh, couple of gin and tonics as well as uh, as did he. And uh, I don't know if you had a drink at the time, but um, but yeah, free flow chat and um, and some free flow G and Ts and uh, and yeah, I, I just he's really made a big impact on the outdoor endurance and ultra running scene in in hong kong almost to a point of like obviously working for the scmp being the the um the sort of biggest english uh, language newspaper in um in, in greater china basically and um and he almost le- legitimized the the sport to a certain extent i mean as soon as it starts getting coverage from like um from a real kind of broadsheet like uh, the scmp um it does give uh, it does give it some really good exposure yeah and it says a lot about hong kong i think that you know that they that that role even exists i mean it's hard to think of any other you know mainstream broadsheet newspaper worldwide that that has an outdoor editor anymore or, or even ever had one but you know, like he was saying, it's it's strange in a way with with running being such a mass participation sport um, that there there isn't more people doing that. But it's great that he's he's carved out that niche, and um, you know, I think he's he's yeah, I think he is responsible for for raising the profile not just of of individual achievements that people are, are doing, but um, just of of outdoor sports in general and particularly within Asia. Yeah, and and he's been completely sort of welcomed and um, by the by the whole community as well. I loved it when he when he talked around Nia's uh, run, and he sort of said, "Oh, look, he felt uncomfortable about writing a story about it, even though it was a great story, but that it would look like he was just trying to sort of take advantage of what was a really sort of tough, extremely tough situation, which just shows the level of integrity the guy's got as well." and um, uh, yeah, I think um, he's uh, he's he's definitely does a does a lot for the uh, lot for the community, and I've just he obviously is an, um, a budding in, in um, uh, on adventurer in his own right, and uh, and yeah, he's definitely been captured by the uh, by the ocean rowing bug. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of the reason he's been so successful, and people want to read read the stories. Is he's got it's almost like a it's like a Gonzo style, isn't it? He's getting involved in the, the stuff that he's writing about, and you know, by his own admission, he's not or wasn't much of a runner, but he's tackled his hundred k's and so on. But yeah, it's, it's it sounds like he's he's always been a sort of an adventurer and an outdoors person at heart, and, and has got these huge goals for himself. Um, yeah, so what what better way to to be pursuing that than, than 
in interviewing and writing about other people who are doing similar things. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, and it, you know, we were just talking about it. It's, it's really interesting because he hasn't yet done the row across the Atlantic. Um, but in a way, it doesn't really matter. Like he still, he still learned so much from it and it's kind of spurred him on to, to tackle something even bigger. Yeah, I love uh, the, the, the question he asked at the beginning of his talk is uh, many of you must be asking the question, why? Um, not why I would attempt to row the Atlantic, but why would you come and watch a talk from someone that had failed to <laughs> row the Atlantic? But that's uh, a, it's a, it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant kickoff, uh, very self-deprecating. Uh, but I mean, as we discussed, like often failure you learn way more from it than if he had have just done it like just flown across um uh with prevailing winds and uh and yeah it's going to set him up uh, to it in a better way to be able to take on the north passage which just sounds like a a pretty hefty undertaking but it does sound like they've got a um a really experienced crew or, or three crews that are going to be um uh, are going to be attempting attempting it so um yeah yeah I, I think, I, you know you you look at that and you, you know he said he, he he really pushed and pushed to be accepted into that crew and and, and that's that's quite interesting in itself right because you, you you could say well you, you need someone who's proven that they can row across the atlantic but but actually does that what does that really prove it proves some degree of, of fitness and capability but really what you need is someone with the tenacity and the drive who just fucking wants to do it um, exactly, and the fact that he's gone back for more, he's failed at it twice. He's still not giving up, and he's actually taking on this bigger one. Um, yeah, I can see. I can see why he wants someone like that in your crew. Yeah, completely. And I, I like the way he talks about it. That you know, we've still got a long way to go before we get to the start line. There can be this kind of um, almost the sense of achievement by sharing a challenge that you're going to attempt without realizing what you've got to take to get you there to be able to the training you need to do the planning the logistics the fundraising the he's 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 under no illusions around the um the the massive uphill task he's got to um to to get to the start line but uh and that that fills me with confidence that he that he will get there and um i mean obviously it's um it's kind of a year or so out, but it's going to be very much dependent on uh, on what the coronavirus does between now and then. But um, but yeah, it sounds uh, he's definitely very very determined. We'll have to get him back on once he does the little row around uh, um, uh, the little row, the the row around Hong Kong Island um, to uh, to see how he's getting on and see how planning's going on. But also, yeah, yeah, go on. No, I was just gonna say, like, I just love chatting about the uh, about the ultra community. I love hearing about his like top um, the the top challenges that he's uh, that he's covered, and uh, and yeah, what's going on in the in the community there. Yeah, like you said, I think um, doing. I mean, because everyone's stuck in in their home countries and are kind of pushing themselves on the local trails and and setting FKTs. I think actually it's going to be a really interesting year when we look back at it in terms of what was done and maybe even how that changes how people approach their their years in future in terms of training and what, what projects they set for themselves. Um, you know, if, um, I mean, as we were saying earlier, it's, if you're, if you're a race director, it's a really challenging time, but you've also now got to factor in the fact that people are discovering that they can, they can set these targets and challenges for themselves. And, you know, maybe the, maybe the days where you're, you're jetting off every few weeks to go and do a race, maybe that's a few years before that comes back. 
Yeah, I've been listening to um, it's a cool podcast, the um, Everything Endurance podcast. There's a couple of guys in the UK. And they've had um, on recently uh, Damien Hall, who's the guy that did the FKT on the Pennines Way, immediately after, um, after John Kelly had done it. Like they, uh, a really interesting story, actually, about how they kind of planned to go together. They originally planned to, to start at either end. They were both already, always planned to do it in opposite directions, but they're actually going to do it at the same weekend, start at the same time in... Uh, um, in uh, and then go in opposite directions and meet in the middle. Um, but yeah, he, um, just listening back to like Damien Hall was planning obviously UTMB and had all of the race in the diary. And it's like, all of a sudden I can actually, I've had all these things in my bucket list, which I can like check off because I don't have the, uh, um, all of these races in the calendar. Um, yeah, so there's been a few more going down. And John Kelly, I saw, I'm not actually started it yet. Or he's about to start his, um, I think it's his second attempt at doing the, the grand round what's he calling out where he does the, the bob graham the paddy buckley um the three the three big rounds in, in the and UK. then cycle in uh, between as well right yeah so you know his, his penham's way fkt was was just an appetizer for for this big one yeah i think um and then obviously i don't know you, you had uh courtney dewater has just attempted the uh the colorado trail which is a 500 mile or so but i think uh had some, I don't know whether it was like liver or kidney or issues or, but um, ended up in hospital after 300 miles. But I think she's, uh, I think she's, she's safe. But, um, but yeah, there's a land ends to John O'Groats FKT that just uh, went down. Um, and I think there's going to be some more in Asia. Well, actually this, um, this weekend, I don't know if he's going for an FKT, but um, there's a uh, uh, Roman Grillo's like one of the, um, he, I think he, um, he won the Craze Ultra 100 kilometers in Singapore just last year. I've like run the Rinjani with him before and uh, he's a phenomenal runner. Like just been running a crazy amount of, um, uh, of distance recently. And he's, um, he's going to do the Monster 200k route in, uh, in Singapore, which um, I'm guessing he might. I'm going to go out and run a bit with him, but uh, I don't know what his goal is. Um, but I, I guess he's going to try and do a, do a record time on that as well. It's nice and rainy in Singapore right now, so he's got the perfect climate for it. Um, but yeah, I'm going to, his, uh, the last 15K pretty much goes past uh, my house and botanical gardens and then up to McRitchie. So um, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pace him for the last 15K. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be a few more there. Yeah. I don't I, What other ones could you do in Singapore? I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? He's going right around the island. I mean, you've, you've already done north to south. I saw Jerry set up a kind of competition for people to do the coast to coast trails. And um, that's right. Jesse, who, Jesse, who you had on, you had on recently, she was, she'd gone out and done a pretty decent job on that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a limit to the landmass. Um, yeah. There isn't really, once you run around it, across it in each of the directions, um, yeah. yeah, the coast to coast one. Yeah, so like Jerry, um, uh, um, Red Dot Running and uh, Fat Bird Events. They, they've, um, yeah, I think they've for Singapore National Day they brought out new T eight T eight shorts. And uh, and yeah, what is it saying? You get a pair of T eight shorts if you do. Is it coast? Is it coast to coast? Like fifty two k coast to coast? Um, yeah, something along those lines, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm just looking, just looking at the monster. Just looking at the Monster Ultra, and I can't I can't see what they're what the course record is but you've got there's a hall of fame there's a couple of people who've done it i think three or four even four times um 
which is uh, which is quite impressive. Yeah. Yeah, very good. I was actually thinking over the weekend, I know we were talking, I'm, I'm still in absolute awe by Mayank's Everest Man and it's found its way into the bucket list. But there's just, I just don't have, um, I don't have time to get the training running before uh, over the next couple of months, which I'd need to do it. So I was kind of looking at potential variation of that, of maybe doing a Ironman distance, but with an overall everesting for the entire bike and bike and run i'm trying to kind of figure things out like that and then it just seems too hard <laughs> i'm like oh god I, I went and did a bit of running around favor the other day and i like uh, i cycled a couple of um and yeah just it reminds me how tough it is doing it 114 times or going up book a team uh uh 60 odd times yeah i'll um yeah, I, I don't know. Might have to push that out another year, but uh, but yeah, might might take on Jerry's coast to coast one. Um, how's your um? How's uh, in fact we've got coming up very soon. We've got a uh, Moira um uh, physio for for UFIT here in uh, in in Singapore, and uh, really great chat actually. She's phenomenal and an unbelievable runner. Like just um, she's a she's a phenomenal runner in her own right. Um, but uh, but yeah, how's your uh, how are your injuries coming on, mate? We're going to see you back on the trails anytime soon. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, I, but UFIT have been great, and and, and I, I haven't been seeing more of it. David Lee of UFIT, they've done a great job. UFIT, kind of, they've pretty quickly established themselves in Singapore as as the sort of go-to people for for sports and fitness. I saw they've 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 launched or announced they've acquired a new sports division, um, and uh, you know they've got a pretty a pretty good array of trainers and physios now. So yeah, all credit to them. Yeah, it's great business. They do a really good job, and yeah, I've been. Um, um, yeah having having pt there for uh for a while as well but without anything to uh, like an actual race to train for anything specific to train for it's uh it, it's hard to uh to focus on doing uh doing strength and conditioning training as well little hit sessions have kind of been suffice for me for the moment uh, but yeah we've got a couple yeah. of good ones coming up we've got uh red um lynn patterson uh, who's uh kayaked around new zealand which is just a crazy story um and uh, and yeah, just this weekend we've um, the the toughest race in the world, the Eco Challenge in Fiji, which was ran last September with a previous podcast guest, Bern Dornham, her and her sister and a team together, um, and so that's being launched on Amazon Prime this weekend, and I cannot wait to binge watch that. It's um, for for anyone that wants to know what um, adventure racing is, uh, expedition style adventure racing is like. Um, needs to um, subscribe to Amazon Prime and uh, and check it out. Yeah, let's uh, let's do a catch up with Bern after that. I mean, she's she's not revealed who won that, has she? But let's uh, let's follow up with her and uh, find out how it all went. Yeah, she's been on a quiet period. She will. Um, yeah, we'll finally be able to be able to have a chat about it. But um, awesome, nice one, Mr. Rick Stockfish. Um, we'll look forward to to sharing the one with uh, Moira in uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And um, and yeah, hopefully see you out on the trails very soon. Catch up soon, Scott. Nice one. Cheers, cheers, buddy. Bye. Tell the truthful story if they ever ask. Stop the complaining, cause things ain't that bad.